Welcome to Leonard Lopate at Large. I'm Leonard Lopate. If you lived in New York City in the 1980s and 90s and were in your 20s or 30s, chances are you were one of millions, yes, millions, who passed through the doors of one of Peter Gation's clubs. Mr. Gation was known as the nightlife impresario, and he either created or nurtured trends in music, fashion, and culture. In his new memoir, The Club King, My Rise, Rain, and Fall in New York Nightlife, published by Little A Press, Mr. Gation looks back at his four decades of extremely successful clubs and how his empire became a major focus of the administration of then-Mayor Rudolph Giuliani. He joins us now from Toronto. Welcome to our show. Hi, Leonard. How are you? I'm okay. I was hoping that we would be able to actually do this in the studio, but then, uh, uh, well, reality intervened. Uh, Where did you grow up? I grew up in a small town in Canada called Cornwall, Ontario. It's a little mill town. You know, uh, basically, there's two mills employed literally 80% of the men that worked there. It was a, you know, just a middle class, lower, you know, lower middle class town of, of working people in, in Canada. Wasn't there tension there between the French Canadian Catholics and the English Protestants? Yeah, in, in the 50s, you know, it was uh, in the 50s, basically, you know, uh, the English English community basically controlled you know, all elements of Canada, and, and we were. You could almost compare it a little bit to you know, the, what the Irish Catholics went through. I, I don't think to that extent, but it was we were definitely. Uh, it was you were definitely somewhat looked down upon if you were a French Canadian, just the way it was. And you were. And that all changed when, when yeah, we were French Canadian. Yeah, I didn't even speak English until I was about eight years old. Your name was Pierre Gation then. You didn't change it to Peter until yeah. later. Um, do you, did you have an entrepreneurial side to you as a kid? Yeah, who, who knows? Uh, uh, you know, my, my father was a mailman, so and you know, most all my uncles worked at the mill, so there was certainly no family, you know, kind of business mentality going around or whatever. No, I just you know, uh, it's a funny thing, I, and I go, I it's detailed in the book where yeah, you know, I, I don't know where my drive came to, to want to be sort of in the hospitality, entertainment, dance business, or whatever, but I think it emanated from. Yeah, we grew up in, a, again, a very frugal environment, and, and the only times I ever saw my family, and it was a large family, my mother, my mother had eight brothers and sisters, and there was literally over 50, uh, 50 grandchildren, it was at the holiday time or weddings where uh, it was the only time these people, you know, had any kind of festivities or, or uh, you know, got away from the brutality of, of normal life. And, you know, some smile and dance and sing and, and whatever, and it was just one of those things, you know, wouldn't it be great to be able to sort of Make a living at doing that. My, you know, my brothers were more academic than I was. I one that's a lawyer, one's a doctor, and the other two were teachers. And I wasn't. Yeah, I just wasn't that great a student. And, and uh, you know, I just viewed it as, you know, that would be something to do. And I sort of, yeah, I don't know if I stumbled in it. I started with a, a, a clothing jeans store when I was seventeen, and then from there bought a dilapidated country and western place and transformed it to a rock and roll club. And the first act that I had was Rush. Mm-hmm. And that was when Rush were, you know, I paid Rush a thousand dollars a week. They were a Toronto band. I used to go to Toronto, to get talent there, bring them back, and, and you know, for the you know small market that we were in. And um, that's how it all started. You know, and well, from there I went to Florida, and uh, 
in Atlanta, then New York, then London, then Chicago, then back to New York with you know, four clubs in the 90s. Now, you, you said you started off uh, selling blue jeans. You got the money for that because of the accident that cost you an eye. Right. Uh, but right. how did you go from blue jeans to, to taking over a, a former country western bar, the Ard, which you called the Aardvark, I guess, um, and and, yeah, uh, and and booking uh, up-and-coming bands like Rush? Well, basically, uh, how, how do I evolve to that? Again, you know, I'm 17, 18, when I have the, you know, the clothing store, and, and you know, I looked at things in very simplistic Simplistic terms back then, I bought a pair of jeans for $4, sold for $8, where, you know, the bars were buying a pint of beer for $0.25 cents and selling for $1.25. Mm-hmm. Obviously, the markup was great. And, and, and quite frankly, even as I was 18, you know, I had the clothing store. The, the idea of, I remember back then, I was the only store that really sold jeans in town. The, the retailers had been around for, you know, 40, 50 years. They didn't know the difference between a bell bomb and elephant pants and whatever, whatever. But having, like, this band up there and having... Some 15-year-old girl crying because she wants you know, these jeans and mother's saying they're too tight for them. And you're standing there like for 10 minutes, you know, witnessing this, this family, you know, melting down in front of you. It was like, you know, I, I don't want to do this for the rest of my life. So um, the, 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 the bar business as a young guy, whatever, you know, seemed like really attractive um, and, and a fun thing to do. And uh, like I said, I sort of stumbled in it. It wasn't like I grew up wanting to be a club owner. At six, seven years old, but again, I wanted to. There was always sibling, sibling rivalry, and I wanted to be uh, at least as successful in my brothers and in my parents' eyes. And, and uh, I guess going into business was the way to do it if you weren't academically uh, gifted like my brothers were, or driven. Now, didn't you marry pretty young and, and learn uh, some things from your first wife's family that would play a role in shaping your future? Yeah, you know, basically, yeah, I got married at, at 19, and, and, and in small towns like that, basically, you know, the pretty girls are all gone by the time, you know, you're 20, 21, 22, so there, there's a real pressure to, you know, socially to, to marry at a young age, and, and, you know, the biggest fear in anybody's life is to be single in a small town, and you've been around, and, and there's nowhere else to go type thing. So, yeah, and, and you know, my, my, my first family I married into were very, you know, I perceived them as being a very successful business family in my small town, and uh, yeah, I learned some you know good things and some bad you know not bad things that they were legal or whatever, but sort of the do's and don'ts in in them. They, they were uh, yeah, they were definitely instructive and, and you know formative in my early years for sure. So you had this club in the small town. Uh, Right. Surprising that you switched from country uh, western because I know a lot of Canadians love country and western music, but you did yeah, that. Well, no, well, yeah, yeah, no, maybe at that time, yeah, that, that place would have catered to a crowd that was you know, like a really rough mill crowd, uh, older, you know, older by you know, stand, my standards back then. You know, I was like 20, 20, 20 21 years old. So, mm-hmm. uh, no, I never wanted, you know, aspired, you know. I want to continue a country and western format or whatever it was. You know, as a 19, 20-year-old kid, that wasn't that wasn't cool even in Cornwall. So, uh, but, no, it, uh, anyway. But then the United States beckoned. You uh, decided to open a club yeah. in in no, South no, Florida. Yeah. No, as a young kid, especially in a, a small, isolated town, you understand. You know, back then, TV basically had three networks. And 
and, and, and basically as a young youngster, you know, watching whether, you know, uh, Father Knows Best or, or it was kind of, you know, uh, Leave it to Beaver or Bonanza or, or Walt Disney World. I remember watching Walt Disney World as a kid and, and watching the opening of Cinderella you know, with Cinderella's Castle. And, like, that way I've been on the other side of the moon for all, you know, within the, you know as far as it was reachable to me, but just the whole American... Uh, Americans looked better than Canadians back then. They just, they just did. You know, they're, they're, you know, you're talking the 50s, 60s. Uh, you know, everybody was driving nicer cars, and even when you know parents used to take us camping or something like that, the Americans would come with you know big trailers, you know, brand new cars and that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. Just, you know, it always, yeah, I always loved America. I just, you know, it was an awe, you know, from the youngster watching, you know, Walt Disney World at, uh, you know, uh, you know, uh, Walt Disney show as a, as a kid. You know, I was always like, God, I don't want to, you know. That's an opportunity there. And you understand also, growing up in small towns like I did, I mean, your horizons are very limited. You, you go to college or university, you can become you know, a doctor, a lawyer, an accountant. If you don't go to you know, high school, you, know, you complete high school, you, you, know, you work in a local mill, and you didn't complete high school, you, know, you dug ditches. Those were the horizons, you know, growing up you know, a young kid in Cornwall. So, you know, it wasn't, uh, you know, wasn't something that I wanted for myself. Well, how did you wind up in South Florida opening the first limelight that you had? You did open a second one you know, a funny, later in Atlanta, yeah. didn't you? Yeah, yeah, sure did. Now, what happened is, you know, in 1976, Billboard magazine had done the, the first uh, international disco conference, and I, I would, I had my rock club, and it, you know, I, I could. It was an influence by from Montreal, and I used to read, you know, a lot of the trade magazines and that kind of stuff. And I, I sort of sensed that, you know, disco, dance music, whatever you want to call it, what was was what was going to start happening. Mm-hmm. So anyway, I, you know, I flew to New York, which I'd never been to New York City, and that, that, that first uh, flew to New York for the to go to that first conference and. I pick up a, a issue of the New York Times, which I'd never read the New York Times in my life. It was in, you know, a paper that was delivered in, in Cornwall. One of the business opportunities, it describes this place in Florida. You know, I had my club held about 400 people. I held, you know, 2,000 people, $600,000 light system, you know, $400,000 sound system. The ad went on and on, selling twice 400000 Anybody looking at that would have said it's something like really stupid or this is not right about this. But lo and behold, it's naive and as I was, uh, got in the plane from New York, went to Florida. The place was in Chapter 11. It was a place that was, was a large place that, that basically uh, was falling apart. You know, negotiated a deal. You know, went back to Canada. My friend was in the light and sound business back then, and we got the government to fund the light and sounds to two to million dollars back then. Mm-hmm. And then went back to Florida, and I don't, you know. I think the largest club in Florida at the time, or definitely, yeah, probably the largest, but close to it for sure. So, and then uh, you you wound up and also went to Atlanta, did a li- uh, a limelight yeah, there, and yeah, and you had and you featured a live panther in, in in the club. Yeah, basically, part you know, the seventies were were the sort of I call it a decade of, of you know miles of neon, chrome, spinning wheels, etc., etc. So it was like Saturday Night Fever, obviously had a big influence on. What was happening, you know, back then, and, and yeah, basically, I'd taken over a, a dinner theater club, and it was an orchestra pit, so we put the glass dance floor in, and it was, you know, a large dance floor, and underneath, we, we, we changed it, you know, from period to period, we had, you know, tigers, we had, we had uh, uh, sharks, 
We had you know mermaids. Yeah, so, but you do you you, you swam over a, a pool of whatever was underneath there. Wow. Um, and you know, obviously, it, you know, uh, people loved it. I mean, it's, you know, everybody likes being a little bit of a daredevil or whatever. And the you know, idea of, of, of dancing above sharks obviously was uh, exciting to a lot of people. My guest on today's or, Leonard Lopez or whatever. Pardon me. I was about to do a station ID and tell people who you are. Uh, this is Leonard Lopez at large on WBAI New York 99.5 FM. And my guest is Peter Gation, who's written a memoir called The Club King, My Rise, Reign, and Fall in New York Nightlife. Uh, how did you, uh, how old were you when you lost your eye? And how did it happen? Basically, I was in grade uh... Yeah, you know, we went to a, 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 a Jesuit school. You know, long story short, uh, the grade one class, we all played on the, the same yard, and we didn't have a, uh, a baseball or whatever. The weather had just broken anyway. So for three days, I nagged this brother, you know, to do a baseball or whatever. So finally, he gives me one. We didn't even have a leather casing to it, and we didn't have a baseball bat. So a anyway, uh, I don't know where the boot where it came from. It was whether a broomstick or mop stick was jagged at one end or they all been broken mm. and i was pitching and and basically uh the kid that you know had the bat you know must have been fooling around or whatever anyway it left his hands and uh you know it struck me in the uh struck me in the left eye i was looking away looked back and there it was and um, for years anyway. people thought that you'd had a hockey accident that's because you're from yeah, canada i see well, that, that was part of it. And to be honest with you, I never want to talk about it. And even in, in the book, I mean, obviously in the book, you know, you want the you know, reader to have an understanding of what affected the person in life or whatever. But for a lot of years, you know, people would ask me, you know, what happened in an accident. And then somewhere the PR machine or somewhere, mm -hmm. you know, concluded it was a hockey act. I just never talked about it. In and high school, you, you, you switch from a glass eye to your famous eye patch. Um, and now you, you, I guess you're you're wearing sunglasses mostly. In the book, you write that the image right. of the eye patch became something you could hide behind. Well, what were you, you know, what were you hiding from? I'm, yeah, you know, I'm a small town kid. You know, insecure. Obviously, you know, you're always insecure when you get out of your bubble. And I was, you know, a long way from you know my Cornwall bubble type thing. So, in a lot of ways, it just allowed you know, allowed me sort of. Uh, an excuse to sort of withdraw. Uh, you know, I was always known as sort of the person behind the shadows or the person in the shadows or, or whatever. And, and, you know, I'm, I'm you know, uh, I'm naturally not a gregarious person or anything like that or, or, or the, you know, the uh, person in the room that gets, you know, that does, you know, gets the most attention or whatever. I'm, I'm basically, you know, a quiet person. So I, I don't know. It, it's, one of those things that, you know, or I could walk in a room and basically, you know, try walking in a room sometime close when your eyes typing. I mean, you're losing, you know, an entire, you're losing almost 180 degrees of, of your, your or 90 degrees of what you're able to see. So, again, I'd be able to walk in a room and, and basically not see anybody if I chose to. It was, you know, I, uh, I, I don't know where to go with this one, but uh, like I said, I think it boils down to I've always been. Somewhat insecure, you know, outside of my element, and I was way out of my element, you know, coming from a small town in Canada. What happened when your parents sued the Catholic Church uh, regarding your accident? Well, yeah, no, we, uh, yeah, we got a uh, we got a settlement around twelve thousand dollars in, in 
those days money and then it accrued for you know uh happened at six i got the, the money when i was 18 so the interest back then was little so it was, it was about sixteen thousand dollars when i uh finally cashed it at, uh at 16. and i used that to uh, finance the you know first my first uh the gene shop the, yeah the gene shop now you write that 99% of success is being at the right place at the right time. Um, how was that the case with the opening of the, the Florida Limelight, which you point out was the biggest club in, in South Florida? Well, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, yeah, the whole nightclub being transformed from live entertainment, which was, you know, what everybody who went to clubs in the, you know, the, the early 70s or whatever, was you went know, you know, to see a band or whatever, being transformed were. Was, you know, uh, the music was recorded music with DJs, and um, so the, you know the, 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 the whole scene you know, was you know really starting to transform. And, and there's a lot of influence. You know, like I said, you know, believe it or not, like Saturday Night Fever had a big impact on, on culture. You know, you know, back then everybody wanted to be John Travolta type thing. Uh, you got to say, you know, people ask me, you know, what, what were the best years at the Operated Club? I mean, they're all good years, but the '70s were the best. They were pre herpes pre-AIDS, pre-STDs, pre-having friends that basically were losing their livelihood to, you know, overindulging in, in cocaine or, or whatever. So that Juana V, that invincibility back then that, uh, that yeah, it's the right place, right time, um, you know, everything from, the, you know, government subsidizing, you know, my, my, my purchases of a you know, million-dollar sound and light system, which obviously, you know, my family didn't have that kind of money. So yeah, you know, it's the right place, right time. Yeah, I mean you, you all, you know, you've got to take advantage of it. But yeah, you know, it was definitely uh, it was, you know, it was a moment know, when I disco music. It was the moment when disco music was really becoming very popular. What? Uh, why did you sour on the South Florida club? You know, it, it, it's not, not so much I soured. It, it, it's uh, um, and I, I think I said in the book basically everything I've ever achieved. You know, the first while I achieved, especially when I was young, obviously not so much now. It's, it's like, boy, if I got that, it would, I'd be so happy, or whatever. And then when I once I achieved it, I, I realized, you know, that you know, this is good, but it's you know, whatever. It gets a little boring after a while. So, just I guess you know, and natural, it's just natural for me to you know, not, I just I get bored relatively quickly after I accomplish something. So from Florida. You know, I used to have people before. Obviously, we were, we were, you know, a lot of tourists would come in and say, you know, this place is terrific. Uh, you should do one in Atlanta. You should do one in Houston. You should do one in Dallas. You know, that kind of stuff. And, and so, yeah, I was starting to look around at different markets. And uh, I got a really good offer on the, on the Florida Club. Um, and Atlanta was a really great opportunity. And I was bored with Florida. I like the change of seasons and that sort of stuff. Um, so, you know, I, you know, wasn't I soured on Florida? It's just, uh, I got bored. So you went on to open that club in Atlanta, but then also Chicago and London. Atlanta wasn't known for its nightlife at the time. We're talking about 1980. The club was located in a strip mall. What made you think that it would be successful? You know, my best quality was always my naivety. Okay, I, I just believe that, you know, building this year come type thing. And, and Atlanta, I, I got to tell you, you know, we always had that sort of Bible belt reputation but again we're talking the 70s now and uh it was people there were as decadent and, and, and 
wild and, and wanting to party as you know anywhere I've ever seen them in, in my life. They were definitely not a uh, not a, you know not a quiet bunch or whatever. You know, Atlanta, and, and Atlanta also was like, you know, sort of like the center of the South, which meant that and, you know, and that, that gay crowd has always been really key to making our concepts work. And Atlanta was where those centers were. Every, you know, every Southern guy that, you know, didn't want to go up in, uh, you know, in, in whether Alabama or Mobile, Alabama or, or Jackson, Mississippi or whatever. So you have you, know, you had a lot of sort of you had a lot of great people living in Atlanta back then. I'm sure you still do, but like I said, it was a, it was a center of, of you know if you wanted to escape your small town or whatever, you came from the south, you went to Atlanta. Now, how did city. Andy Warhol become associated with the club? He he's a New Yorker. You know, we had developed a yeah we had developed a reputation, and you know we were in, 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 regularly in the, in the New York papers, you know, page six and that kind of stuff. We developed a reputation as being you know the, the Studio Fifty Four of the South, and um, basically, you know, we developed a you know you know, you know whether my PR guy in the in New York or whatever, but you know we we got to meet, and then you know he came. To one of the parties in in Atlanta, and uh, we nurtured a relationship. And he opened, you know, New York, and he opened Chicago, and he opened London Club for me. And, and you know, I wasn't paying Andy Warhol. Warhol didn't need my money, and he certainly would have never prostituted himself that way. Um, I just think that he, you know, was a, a cultural icon, and, and felt responsible for him to, to contribute to nightlife and the you know, art and everything else that he did and and I, I think he just saw that you know my organization was 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 contributed also and he wanted to you know be part of it um but you were able you, know, was, you were able to bring yeah, gay and able, straight crowds together peaceably in in a club in in the south in uh, the early 1980s right uh, yeah early 80s so 79 80 81 yeah wasn't there an incident hey, involving you know, Anita Bryant, who at the time was a public face of homophobia? Yeah. yeah. No, no, you know, Anita Bryant, who was a public face of homophobia, long story short, we used to have this, you know, these uh, Sunday tea dances, and, and literally there would be you know, 25,000, 3,000 people on a Sunday afternoon coming in you know, to dance type thing. And she was there uh, dancing away, and you know, photographer caught it. And, and you know, it, it, I, you know, certainly didn't help her uh, <laughs> credibility too much. But yeah, it was. Uh, it made uh, you know, the AP took that thing and made it. You know, it, it made it in every newspaper in the United States and probably a lot in in, uh, in Europe also. Yep. Um, she was there on a you know, predominantly gay uh, gay event. <laughs> Were drugs already a part of the scene? Listen, drugs have always been part of a scene. And, you know, I always said, you know, my clubs, whether in New York, Atlanta, or whatever, we are, we're not microcosm of society. If, if, if my demographics, if 20% of those, you know, people say under 30 are, are, are indulging a little, you know, in drugs, then that applies to my uh, my clientele also. So it, it was, you know, it was the 70s. Drug, cocaine was definitely very popular in the late 70s. Like I said, that was prior to people having, you know, devastating, uh, being devastated by, by overindulging in, in, you know, something that they shouldn't have. But, you know, the 70s, yeah, you know, it, it was, you know, but 
to say, like, it wasn't like everybody in the place was, was, you know, out of their minds type thing, but was there an element of it? Yeah, for sure. Like there is in every other city in, in America. We're talking, I'm talking with uh, Peter Gation. Uh, this is Leonard Lopate at Large on WBAI New York 99.5 FM. Today is Peter Gation. Uh, he has written a book called The Club King, My Rise, Reign, and Fall in New York Nightlife, published by Little A Press. And so let's talk about when, uh, what brought you to New York. Suddenly, uh, all of this was leading up to your move to Manhattan. Uh, what did you think about that abandoned church on the corner of 6th Avenue and 20th Street when you first saw it in 1983? All right, all right, all right. You know, I immediately fell in love with the building. You know, at the time, obviously, Studio 54 was sort of like the benchmark of, of you know, what you know, the most successful club in New York was. By the time uh, I arrived in, in New York, or was planning on doing New York, we'll call that chromes, you know, spinning wheels, neon, whatever, had been done to death in my clubs and Studio 54 and all the clubs around. So I, I felt that if I was going to go to New York, uh, you know, if, if I bought a bigger theater and had more spinning lights and wheels and whatever, then Studio 54 would have had, it would have said, yeah, so what? It's just a bigger Studio 54. So, the, you know, the, the, the whole thing had, you know, going in a different direction. And I felt art and architecture were the way to go. I instructed a real estate guy, listen, find me a church if you can, if not something with historical significance, high ceilings, you know, uh, ex, you know, uh, Architecture, you know, details, you know, everything is, you know, something that like, you know, would really be awesome. But I kept saying, go back, you know, please let you can find me a church. And that was for a few reasons. You know, churches have, besides being architectural gems, they have high ceilings, they have a lot of doors, they have, you know, kind of things that you need, you know, to get licensed, you know, for public assembly. But the building had been abandoned for a decade. Um, it didn't, uh, how long did it yeah, take to, to repair and refurbish it? Believe it or not, we did it in a year. And, and that was with, like, you know, crews, you know, not working 24 hours every day, but, you know, long, you know, 18-hour days. And it, it took a while. But the, um, the uh, yeah, the church was perfect in that it, you know, it came with a rectory. It came with a you know, parish hall. It came with a library. You know, it, it came with a, a nunnery or whatever. So, a lot of small, a lot of rooms in limelight, and in the '80s, music was starting to, to splinter. Also, where you know, the '70s basically everybody was advancing to Donna Summer or Gloria Gaynor or, or you know the big disco acts. 
you know, now, you know, music was starting to splinter. You know, you had punk that was starting to come around. You had, you know, different elements of music were starting to come around, which meant that you need, needed more than one big dance space, like mm-hmm. a la Studio 54, uh, or a la my, my limelight in Atlanta. So the, the building, it was perfect. It was like a dream. You know, it was on an avenue, which meant, you know, uh, thousands of cars would drive by a day. Um, and, you know, it was, it was just, you know, it was a dream. And you became known in the business as the anti-Steve Rubell, the uh, the co-owner with Ian Schrager of Studio Fifty Four. Correct, and and a bunch of reasons for that. Um, first off, you know, my personality does not, uh, you know, it's not not my personality to be the life of the party. And, and more importantly, and I learned that at you know, my first club actually in, in Cornwall. Where First three weeks I had the places packed. I'm partying, you know, I'm not partying like crazy partying, but I'm drinking every night and I'm having a good time and whatever. And then three weeks later, my checks are bouncing. Mm-hmm. And I looked around and said, you know, the place is packed. <laughs> Something's wrong here. And, you know, it didn't take an Einstein to figure out, okay, uh, you know, if you're half in a bag, you know, your staff are just going to be half in a bag also and things aren't going to work well. So from that point on, I never once, and I, I can swear this on the Bible, never once took a drink in any of my clubs. The other, you know, and the other part is that, you know, it, it, you know, if you start being part of the party every night, physically, you can't take it. You just, you know, your body can't take it. And, you, know, you, you know, it's impossible to deliver. And, and, and most of, believe it or not, most of the energy, most of the thinking, whatever, is all done in the daytime in nightclubs where you're, you're setting up whether you're on a DJ program, just setting up, you know, different parties, whether it's a book party, a fashion show, a, a movie opening, a, a new act that you're, you're featuring, you know, whatever. So, um no, it's just, you just can't, you know, physically you can't do it. You just, you know, can't do it. And it, it, you know, it's not my nature anyway. You know? And, and to be honest with you, I'm more gratified that people came to my clubs for the concepts of my 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 team put together than if they're coming to, you know, let's go to Limelight and visit Peter. Nobody, you know, went to Limelight to visit Peter. They went because Limelight or Tunnel to play in the Club USA was, was putting, you know, all sorts of energy into creating, you know, a night that people would never forget. Um, well, you were you were opening a club at a time when New York was going through some pretty difficult times, the the early 1980s. But it was also a time when a number of creative artists were working here. Pretty impressive list: Keith Haring, Jeff Koons, Basquiat, Robert Maplethorpe, yeah. uh, Jenny Holzer, and others. Do you think that that climate played a role in the early success of the of Limelight? Well, yeah. Listen, what we did, you know, I, I, you know to be do the creative things we do, you have to have a, a, a support structure, and, and you know, yeah, 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 and it has to be in a major market. You just you know, like you couldn't pull what we pulled off in Cincinnati. No disrespect to Cincinnati or, or Houston or those kinds of. You have to have a, a, a creative community in New York. You know, you're just driving the art scene, you know, the fashion, you know, the, 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 all you know. The creative community is so overrepresented in New York that it makes it. Possible to you know to do a lot of this stuff. I mean, you have to have you know the talent underneath the you know to put all this stuff together. Whether it's set designing, whether it's you know music, whether it's the lighting, whether you know there's a lot of elements that go into to making it successful. Uh, to the parties, like you know, and you try to do parties, you know, or, you know, do a maple maple party, a book party, and you know you do different kind of parties that attract different elements that normally those people wouldn't all congregate together, but you, you know putting them together. And that's, again, something I, I really get a lot of gratification from is that we put people together that normally didn't, you know, didn't, just, you know, didn't uh, socialize together. 
you got to understand, in the 80s and the 90s, and more so than the 80s, it's still the 90s, you know, LBGT rights and acceptance and tolerance was nowhere near what it is today. So for a lot of these people that came to New York and, and wanted to congregate, they had a, you know, a safe place where they could express themselves and have a good time. And, and I often saw, you know, you know, saw people, you know, basically, you know, whatever from Brooklyn neighborhood that I'm sure, you know, never socialized once in their life with a gay person that, you know, once they were around them or, or whatever. So, like, you know, these people are not so bad. So we, we put a lot of energy in, into attracting an eclectic crowd. And it was very egalitarian back then also. You know, it's, it's like um, it wasn't we looked for a customer, okay, can you know, this guy blow $1,000 on a frigging bottle service tonight? Yeah, that wasn't in our mind at all. It was like, what could you contribute to the party, whether it's the way you dress, the way you acted, the way you strolled around, the way, you know, that was how we valued a customer, not somebody pulling up in a limousine, you know, with, you know, wanting to buy bottles. In fact, we didn't have bottles back then, but, you know, it was very egalitarian back then. But I, but I assume it's also, I assume it was also a factor yeah. in in your in who you hired in your staff because uh, Limelight was known for its diverse and colorful employees, and you even had uh, some pretty famous people. Chaz Palmateri worked security for you when he was a struggling yeah, actor. Chaz, Chaz, yeah, yeah. No, Chaz worked for me for uh, five six years, um, and, and that's and, how I got into producing The Bronx Tale and and. and you know, that whole project, you know, you know came to fruition. He was, yeah, he yeah. had a one-man show, and you produced it, and and then then you produced the, the movie with uh, with Robert De Niro? I, I, I executive produced the movie. I produced the play, executive produced the movie. Uh-huh. I, yeah, yeah, I guess beyond my bailiwick, I was trying to produce the movie. But still, uh, this is a, this is on top of running four clubs. Yeah, the top of running four clubs, and you know, uh, yeah. Um, but you know, I always listen. I, I always had that. You know, I was listen. I used to tell my staff all the time, "We're here to create culture, or whatever." And in Chaz's situation, um, you know, I detail that in the book. How basically, you know, he he left for L.A. You know, on really good terms. You know, the security guys would, you know, some of them go back and forth to L.A. just you know to visit him or whatever, and then. Yeah, you know, he was obviously like all actors, really struggling. He calls me up one day and says, "Hey, Peter, uh, you know, you've always wanted to be a producer. I've just done a play. Can you send me some money? And you know, you know how much you need, guys? Well, mm-hmm. Dan Loria is coming, you know, coming up with half. You, know, you come up with half. So I said, "Sure." There's how much is it? Six thousand dollars. Got a call two weeks later. Chad, plays doing great. Can you send me another six thousand? So anyway, this went on for. Four times. By the time I was into twenty-five thousand, which you know, a month and a half later, one of the security guys had seen the play and said, "You know, Peter's actually pretty good. Why don't you go down there and check it out?" Uh, which I did, and it was great. And then from there, you know, we herded studio people in there and De Niro, and uh, I produced it on uh, on Off Broadway here, uh, and we got some substantial offers for the uh, for the uh, for the rights and. Uh, that's how Bronx talking about. And another employee was Michael Ehrlich. Um, his story didn't turn out as well as Chaz's. Yeah. Um, he was one of the yeah. uh, club kids who were big in the 90s. And uh, we, we don't have a lot of time, but can you give us a short version of what happened? Michael was a very talented person. And, and, and it's, it's basically, he went from being a really good 
sort of host, entertainer, or whatever. And somewhere along the lines in the last three or five months that he worked for me, he crossed over to heroin. Anyway, we let him go. And basically, you know, everybody knows the story. He, uh, he uh, you know, killed uh, somebody at his apartment. Um, and it's unfortunate. You know, obviously, I feel really you know, sorry for the family and what they went through and whatever. Um, but it's unfortunate Michael sort of tainted that whole club kid era as, as being a bunch of deviant kids that, you know, and, and, you know represented by Michael Allig or whatever. The reality is, we go, you know, a lot of these cross-dressers and club kids or whatever were just young kids with, you know, aspiring fashion designers, aspiring stylists, aspiring this, that, that yeah, like to dress up and they felt comfortable coming to my clubs and other clubs also in town. And, and uh, it's unfortunate that a whole movement that, you know, I think spawned a lot of fashion, you know, um, just got tainted by, uh, by Michael. Um, it, it, you know, it is what it is, but, um, yeah, you know, Michael, uh, did something that was horrific. Uh, he went to jail for it rightfully. And, uh, unfortunately tainted, uh, you know, that whole club kids scene uh, as being, you know, a bunch of deviants, which they weren't. Well, this, now we're in the early 90s, 1990s, which you describe as crazy, exciting, and possibly lucrative years. Uh, but it's also a time um, when HIV-AIDS is uh, decimating a no, portion. No, the AIDS thing hit, hit, hit a little earlier, I know. No, no, it hit, no, it hit a lot earlier. AIDS basically, and we're talking about like 1985, where people didn't know where they contracted from a kiss, from a dirty glass, you know, or, or whatever. And I had a lot of gay employees that passed away. Um, basically, you see somebody, like, you know, one day, and then three weeks later, you know, just uh, body had just deteriorated so badly, and then, you know, two weeks later, you know, they passed away type thing. No, the AIDS, the AIDS hit in, in New York was uh, 85 to... started in 85, and... It really got the attention, obviously, of the locals more and more so than uh, nationally. And, you know, even Reagan that took him out, you know, until Rock Hudson died, yeah. him to yeah. realize that, you know what, uh, this is uh, this is real and it's just not some, you know, small gay disease that, you know, is going to go away anytime soon. So, yeah, you know, I'd say 85, it started coming on. Like 86, 87, it was, you know, it hit New York really, really hard. And those were the years. New York and San Francisco were sort of the epicenter of, of the AIDS crisis, and so in those years, uh, basically, you know, no longer we were doing like you know, Maple Thorpe or, or those kind of parties. And it, it just you know, that seemed like a completely, you know, uh, nobody was going out there. Everybody had a friend that you know was, you know, almost deadly sick or, or had passed away or, or whatever. So in those years, you know, I'd say 86, 87, 88. Were, were the years that were hardest hit in New York age. And those are the years I did a club in London, I did a club in Chicago, uh, because, um, you know, those cities, fortunately, had not, uh, had not been like whacked like, uh, yeah, like, like uh, New York was. Meanwhile, you were juggling four clubs, and you were also promoting and hosting young artists in the early days of hip-hop, or... Uh, you had to keep up with all the yeah. trends, house, grunge, techno, industrial. And then along comes Rudolph Giuliani in January 1st, 1994, sworn in as mayor of New York after he'd run as a law and order candidate. Um, right. Did you feel that at the time that you might become a target? No. 
No, I, I basically, sorry, I, I thought we operated our clubs uh, as well as they could, as far, you know, as, as far as illegal, no, as much as less illegal activities happening inside as, as possible. So, no, I, I didn't. And the fact of the matter is, I was, you know, in those years, I was starting to really get mainstream recognition of, of an industry that was sort of important to New York nightlife. So, no, I, I didn't feel vulnerable. And I, you know, there's two theories that are out there. I, I think Giuliani, you know, you remember the first couple of years, I don't know if you were in New York then, but the first couple of years, you know, we went after all the squeegee people, we went after the artists, we went after Bam, uh, you know, they had a bare-chested Madonna in there, you know, tried to take the funds away, whatever. I think he woke up one morning and he ran out of squeegee people, and, and you know, I was the face of nightlife back then. It wasn't like it was Peter Gation and John Doe, you know, running a close second. I, you know, I, you know, I, I, you know, I, I was the face of nightlife. And, and he, uh, New York Post back then, yeah, yeah, New York Post was basically a newsletter for them back then. So he just went after me with, you know, scorched earth, and I kept winning in court. And then um, finally, you know, basically bankrupt me, and then, the, you know, final blow was the uh, deportation. No, you became the, his, the target of his quality of life campaign. Uh, and yeah, didn't I, I, Robert I, I, Silbering, uh, the special narcotics prosecutor for New York City, once say Peter Gation was a marked man in one way or another? He was going down. Uh, when did you become yeah. aware of that? And when when did you start hearing that uh, people were saying that you operated a drug, a drug supermarket? Well, you know, that, that, uh, that branding only started... You know, when I got charged, you know, by the feds, and then you know, the, the, the press conference, you know, it's, it's, it's a drug supermarket. Ta -da, ta -da, ta -da, ta -da. I, I think what happened with Giuliani, like I said, you know, that's one theory. I think the theory is he ran out of squeegee people. A person I know that works in City Hall really well, uh, basically, her theory was at a high level. Her theory was that in 1996, I just, uh, I, I've been invited to do the, the, uh, the nightclub pavilion at the U.S. Olympics. I was on a TV show called um, hang on a second, that Ted Turner show. Um, hang on one second. Uh, I, I just, uh, I, I'm getting a break. Anyway, Turner was, show. It made, you know, um, I was. Uh, hang on a it, it's not important. Pinnacle. 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 No, anyway, it, it's, a, it's a show called Pinnacle that had. People were much bigger stature than I was, like you know Ted Turner, and, and, and like it was a weekly program or, or whatever. I was at that time, Forty Second Street was also starting to develop. I, I was getting the developers there that were basically begging me to, to whatever theater I wanted, you know, just do it or whatever, whatever. And I think Giuliani, you know, didn't want what I was doing to ever become mainstream acceptable in New York City, you know, where I was getting to. I was a cross-dresser, I was training gays, you know, drag queens, a uh, big hip-hop night, a uh, legendary hip-hop night that attracted, uh, you know, obviously an urban hip-hop crowd, and they, uh, you know, they just weren't going to have it. And I kept so, winning, you know, so they closed me down, and, and I, I, I'd win in, in, in state court every time. You know, I was, I was financially just being broken and broken, and I, I won every time. Every time we went to court, even though we were close three and a half months, the judge would say, hey, Peter Gation, you know, Mr. Gation seems to be doing the best job you, know, you, you can here. You know, it's like, and they would reopen me. And, and anyway, um, but it was, a, it was a scorched earth 
campaign, and you know, I, I think people have seen, uh, you know, they have not given me the benefit of the doubt a few years back. Uh, but you know, anybody who's seen Julian behave in the last couple of years would definitely have to at least listen to uh, my uh, argument that the, this guy has no boundaries and that, and he's you know he's a mean man. He's just is. Well, the the campaign against you, the campaign against you that involved federal, state, and city commissioners failed, as you say, to to link you to the sales of drugs in your clubs. But uh, they didn't give up on you. And what were you? What finally brought you down? Why were you deported? Deportation. Why was I deported? Uh, Because somebody pulled some strings. Basically, when I pled guilty to the sales tax. Charge. And everybody in the nightclub, and, and listen, I did it. It's, it's not quite. Everybody in the nightclub pays some of their employees cash. I literally paid one percent of my staff, whether it was drag queens or people who didn't have bank accounts in cash, over a uh, over a five year period, which they nailed me for. I'd done over a hundred million dollars in business, and they you know, they they went after me for a million. Any other business would have they would have been in a, a, an assessment, and. They would have come in and said, you owed this. It wouldn't, you know, you wouldn't charge criminally or anything like that. So anyway, I pled guilty to that, paid the million dollars, um, spent two, week, two months in Rikers Island, got my certificate of relief, which was part of the deal, which meant I could retain my liquor licenses. And, uh, and I was interviewed by uh, INS at Rikers Island. And, you know, they said, no, you're not. You're not deportable. Blah, 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 blah. You know, we'll, we'll see you. you know, uh, we'll never see you. Type thing. And then two years later, um, I got picked up by ICE for uh, what they called a uh, aggravated felon. And I could have won it. Uh, and my lawyers felt strong about it, but I would have been in, in, in detention in uh, INS jail for like a year and a half, two years, waiting for my uh, my hearing date. And then just like at that point, you know, I Got the white flag, and it's like, you know, I'm not staying in jail for two years to wait for it, you know, uh, you know. And I got to tell you, you know, it, it's, it's whatever I've gone through, whatever, you know, and it's not a woe me or whatever. I'm really cautious. I'm not trying to take myself as, like, you know, the biggest victim that ever walked the face of the earth. But when I see what's happening with kids in, in cages and, and immigrants these days, mm-hmm. it's like my heart really goes out to them. Because like, those INS detention places, I was in three of them. For a period of six weeks, um, Rikers is like a, a resort as compared to these INS detention places. They're just you know, inhumane, is another way to describe them. Your daughter, Jen Gation, produced a documentary called Limelight about New York City limelight in uh, nightlife in the 1990s and what happened to you. Um, mm-hmm. Where can I access that film? Um, I'm sure you go on YouTube, it's available. Um, huh. you know, Google, you know, yeah, I, I would think. Uh, I mean, it played in theaters, it actually did really well in, in you know, the major markets in uh, like New York. Um, but I'm sure it's available on that uh, YouTube. And now all of the, the clubs are closed. Limelight, at least part of it, is a pizza parlor, tunnel is a mini storage space, Palladium is now NYU dorms. Um, are there any right. comparable clubs today? And, 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 no, and Club USA is is uh, is is a uh, is a hotel. It's, uh, anyway, uh, no, there is there isn't. Yeah, you know, a lot of things have happened. Yeah, you know, one of them I think you know, overzealous law enforcement. 
I think the bottle service concept or whatever, where, where owners started valuing customers on how much they could spend and, and not what they contribute to the uh, the atmosphere and, and the, the, the whole vibe of the night. And, and then social media. And I really think like the, you know, I did clubs in the 70s, 80s, and 90s. And basically, there were, you know, music changed, the fashion changed, but it was boy meets boy, you know, girl meets girl, you know, whatever the case mm-hmm. may be. <clears throat> there was pre-social media. So if you want to find like-minded people back then, you have to go out. You have to go out and dress fresh. You have to see what people are wearing. You have to, you know, hear what, you know, the music that you were doing. You want to be ahead of the music. You know, stuff was always played ahead, of, you know, in clubs. There was no, you know, people didn't even have cell phones or, or Twitter or anything like that. So, you know, even when you went out at nighttime, wasn't like you tweet and say, hey, the limelight's packed on tonight, you know, come on down, the limelight's dead tonight, don't bother coming by. Or whatever the case may be, people had to go out. And, you know, that's changed now. Like I said, you want to find like-minded people, now you can sit in your basement, you know, find an app and, and do, it, you know, do a lot of things. It's just a different world now. Well, you um, would have been closed anyway and, because you know, of COVID-19. Yeah. But uh, I'm assuming you uh, you feel a bit bitter about the way the authorities came after you. Do you miss the days of well, being at the very top of the nightclub scene? Yeah, well, do I miss it? It's a young man's game. So yeah, I'm not delusional to think that I, you know, at 68 years old, I'm still going to be, you know, uh, have the, the energy. Yeah, you know, it takes a lot of energy to you know, put all these, you know, these nights together. We were doing between the four clubs, you know, we're doing like 30 different parties, you know, a week. Um, so it's a lot of, you know, organization, you know, from the invites to the different staff, obviously staff at a rock and roll church, uh, which was a big night at limelight for years. It's different from staff on, on a night that's, you know, predominantly gay or a goth night or, or you know, a techno night or, or whatever. So, you know, you know, the staff, you know, challenge of getting the right staff or right door people to, you know, make it as comfortable as you can, and you know, to your crowd. It takes a lot, a lot of organization. So, so yeah, what are you doing now sure. other than, we're pretty much out of time, but what are you doing now yeah. other than writing a memoir? By the way, the memoir called The Club oh, well, King, My Rise, Reign, Nick, Nick, and Fall in New York Nightlife, published by Little A Press. Okay. Nick Pelleggi of Casino and Goodfellows just wrote a screenplay. It's being financed by oh. uh, Amazon Studios. So anyway, uh, it's in its final polish right now. Um, we're starting. We were hoping to start shooting in uh, in September, but to be honest, we had, at this point, there's more likely the beginning of next year. So that, yeah, that's a that's a, it's a fifty million dollar budget for that you know for that, that that movie. So I'm doing that. I'm also developing with Sasha Jenkins, who just got a, uh, nominated for an Emmy for the Wu Tang Club, uh, a you know, series that just came out on Netflix. I guess you know about two three months ago. So we're developing a. Um, we're developing a, a Tunnel Sunday uh, hip hop uh, documentary. Um, and, well, thank you so uh, yeah, much. Hope to have okay, we hope to have everybody. Uh, we've just run out of time. Thank you. Okay. Good luck in the future. Thank you so much, Peter, Peter right. Gation, for being on our show today. All right. Well, and that brings us to the end of today's show. Special thanks to Todd McGovern who produced this segment. If you're new to our program and you like what you've been hearing, you can access past shows streaming on demand at WBAI.org. We're also available as an iTunes podcast. And don't forget to follow our show pages on Facebook and Twitter or to head over to our website, LeonardLopateAtLarge.com, where you can find links to our free archive of past shows. I'm continuing to broadcast from my home and my 
staff and I hope that you're staying safe and uh, that this show can offer you an hour's escape from the unrelenting stream of COVID-19 news. We hope you can join us tomorrow when Dr. Gerald Goldhaber will discuss his book, Murder Incorporated, How Unregulated Industry Kills or Injures Thousands of Americans Every Year. See you then.